Netflix burned more than $55 million on Rinch's show and gave him near total budgetary and creative latitude, but never received a single episode. Oh, shit. <laughs> Soon after he signed the contract, Mr. Rinch's behavior grew erratic, according to members of the show's cast and crew, texts and emails reviewed by the New York Times, and court filings <laughs> in a divorce case brought by his wife. He claimed to have discovered COVID-19 secret transmission mechanism and to be able to predict <laughs> lightning strikes. He gambled a large chunk of the money from Netflix on the stock market and cryptocurrencies. He spent millions of dollars on a fleet of Rolls Royces furniture and designer clothing oh. Mr. Rinch and Netflix are now locked in confidential arbitration a proceeding initiated by Mr. Rinch who claims the company breached their contract and owes him 14 million dollars in damages oh I love this guy <laughs> dude I love this guy. Whoa. Okay, this is the best shit, though. You're going to love him even more after you hear this. Mr. Rinch had begun using what remained of the 11 million Netflix had wired his production company to place bets on crypto. He transferred more than 4 million from his Schwab account to an account on the Kraken exchange and bought Dogecoin, a dog-themed cryptocurrency. Unlike his stock market investments, this one paid off. When he liquidated his Dogecoin positions in May 21, he had a balance of nearly $27 million. (laughs) Yes! Thank you and God bless crypto, an elated Mr. Rinch wrote in an online chat with a Kraken representative. Get him, dude. Get him. God fucking. <laughs> oh, that rocks. Get their asses, dude. Holy shit. Yeah. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Ahoy, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders. I'm one of the hosts of this show. And with me today, as always, are... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasulis. For those who don't know, this show is a weekly double feature podcast where one of us picks a theme for the week, and then the other two hosts program a double feature in reaction to that theme. And sometimes when it's my turn to pick the topic, I I get a little selfish and I think of, um, what do I just really want to watch? What am I in the mood for? What am I going to force these guys to put in front of my face? And that's what I did this time, because this week it was my turn to pick the topic. And Molly and I are going on a very short uh, trip to Prague in a couple weeks, just going to do a little Christmas weekend out there. And I've been to Central Europe before, but have never been to the Czech Republic, Czechia. And it's just a space that I've been fascinated with. And I thought, what the hell? Let's uh, watch some films from the area. And I didn't really limit it beyond that. I didn't want it to just be Prague set or anything like that. I just said, bring me, let's check it out. Let's look at films uh, from Czechia. And that's what these boys did. It was really nice. I've actually had kind of a fun week. I've just been consuming a ton of of Czech films, and it's funny how many reverberations there were from all of those films with the two films that you both picked. And I think the two films you picked are very representative 
of the range of Czech cinema and also some of the things that they just seem to be inherently fascinated by, which I think is kind of funny. There's a lot of like interesting signifiers that are shared amongst the dispersed group of, of Czech films I watched. Because I watched some stop-motion stuff, like old Czech legends. I watched uh, that Alice in Wonderland movie is really cool. Not Valerian or Week of Wonders, the actual Alice, which has like a nightmare. Yeah, Svankmeyer. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, classic. Very cool. And then, yeah, also, you know, it's I watched some pre- and post-Prague Spring Czech films, and they have very distinct flavors, and I think that we have have that on display this week with, with our double feature. Andy had the earlier of the two films, so why don't you kick us off and tell us a little bit about what you brought? I'd be glad to. Um, the film that I chose is one that I had been meaning to see for a long time. Um, the the director, I think, is, is in recent years especially, due to a lot of, like, restorations, um, been kind of rediscovered, certainly in, I think, the 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 United States, anyway. And uh, I, I'd, like, sort of seen images from a lot of his films and, and always just kind of sat there, like, imagining the, the, the wondrous experience that that must uh, be a part of these films. And uh, ultimately, I was not let down. And this topic uh, was just the perfect opportunity to, to again, as we've discussed before on this podcast, uh, just move something up the queue and uh, bring it to our uh, immediate attention. I also remember vividly in a previous <laughs> week when uh, you and I were picking films. Uh, mm-hmm. It was Marsh's topic, and this was on your short list. Yes. And and again, at the time, I was like, ooh, I've been meaning to see it. I've been meaning to see it. And we ultimately went a completely different direction. So I was very happy when you selected the topic to bring this one back, not just for me, but also for you, knowing that it was one that you had previously thought about um, you know, bringing to the podcast. So without further ado, because you know what it is, <laughs> um, <laughs> the film that I chose is from the mad genius of, of Czech hybrid animation, Carol Zeman and his film Invention for Destruction from 1958. This is like a lot of Zeman's uh, other films. He sort of had a, a, a period where he was really um, all in on adapting um, loosely at times the work of Jules Verne. Um, this is based off of the Jules Verne, I guess it's a, I think it's a novel, Facing the Flag. It's one that I had never read. I'd read some Jules Verne growing up, but this was not one that I had. However, it does incorporate elements of some other Jules Verne stories and books. Uh, There are references to uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in a very uh, um, amusing sequence we're going to get to uh, later. But this follows uh, a man by the name of Simon Hart, who is the, I guess, assistant of Professor Roche. And Professor Roche is uh, a foremost expert in uh, developing a sort of uh, new matter, a new wonder matter that can, of course, lead to very great things for the world, but also, on the other side, uh, potentially... Um, violent destruction as well. 
Uh, Professor Roche and Simon Hart are kidnapped by the villainous Count Artigas and his, like, army of, of pirates and, and what I will call aquanauts. Uh, and they, uh, you know, first steal some, some famous submarine that's this new wonderful invention, and then they use that to capture Professor Roche and Simon Hart and skirt them away to the island of Back Cup, which is a sort of deactivated volcano which hides this, this like, pirate lair, this, like, Bond villain fortress out in the middle of the ocean. And they are manipulating Professor Roche into developing a super weapon, this, this matter which can essentially, I guess, the allegory, uh, right, it's connected to the idea of sort of like nuclear weapons, right? These, these sort of devastating explosives that they're going to then use to, of course, take over the world. Um, but the plot is not really the star of the show. The star of the show is Carol Zeman's uh, absolutely visionary, one-of-a-kind approach to the materials of filmmaking. Within this movie, folks, we've got uh, traditional animation mixed with live action. We've got stop motion. We've got mats. We've got miniatures. We've got superimpositions. We've got forced perspective. We've got it all going on. And sometimes within a single frame. I mean, this is an incredible incredible feat of form. I mean, it is uh, mind-boggling, breathtaking. It is a very giddy kind of uh, experience, I think, when you're just immersed in this this truly imaginative approach. Um, the design, which I think we're going to spend a lot of our time really kind of picking apart, uh, is related very much. Like, his vision for, for this was to to sort of bring to life the Victorian line engravings that were part of the original artwork that went along with Jules, Jules Verne's uh, works of fiction. So you see that quality throughout. It is uh, sort of, I think, considered by some people to be like the first true work of steampunk art. And it's very much rooted in that kind of like Victorian futurist uh, a vision of the world that Jules Verne brought us and so many people have have uh, lovingly played with over the years. Yeah, this is uh, an absolutely kind of bonkers film, unlike anything I've ever seen before. I mean, I should say I've seen plenty of imitators, but this was my first time seeing the, the, the original yeah. uh, work that, that has been, you know, picked up by so many other filmmakers since. It's it's really, really an incredible, credible film. And um, yeah, I was very excited to bring it to the pod and finally get to watch it. So that is Invention for Destruction. Thank you. Yeah, it's funny. I was going to bring it for the, the Abyss episode when we decided to do like Under the Sea movies. And the movie I ended up picking was Jacques Cousteau. And it's so funny that watching Invention for Destruction the first person I was thinking of too was also Wes Anderson, similar to Jacques Cousteau. Like mm -hmm. once I encountered Invention for Destruction and hearing the music, especially with the the cutout animation, I was like, oh, there's like a very clear, very clear influence here, uh, unquestionably. So it's funny that when I think Under the Sea, I guess my minds go to 
the people Wes Anderson has been imitating over the years. Kind of strange. Yeah. But Marsh, I don't think I see a lot of Wes Anderson in your film. Yours is a little different. Tell me about <laughs> what, what you brought. Yes. First, I have a I have a sort of Chicago check aside that I would like to uh, oh, bring up uh, because you know the city of Chicago has a strong connection to Czech cinema. Uh, number one, Milos Stalik, founder of Facets Multimedia, R.I.P. Uh, of course, was yeah from there, uh, as well as the Columbia College cinematography department for years was run by multiple Czechs, Robert Buchar and uh, Yarmir Sofer, who shot closely watched trains, uh, was a cinematography instructor uh, at Columbia for years. And so I know I had friends go through Columbia's program, like a friend of the pod, Andrew Mason, for example, uh, who was, yes, in lighting workshops, like getting berated by the guy who shot, you know, Jerry Menzel films or whatever. So uh, I always have felt that the the Czech presence has loomed large in Chicago because of because of Milos and because of Columbia. So I just wanted to, to shout that out, our sort of, you know, sister city partnership there, you know. Uh, if anyone is listening, Listening at FAMU, I'll teach there anytime. Just let, <laughs> just hit me up. You know, you want me to come over there, talk about heist films. Anyway, yeah. So, um, what did I pick? Right, uh, I wasn't gonna pick. You know, any of the the classics. You know, uh, I do love Marquetta Lazarova, Fireman's Ball, that kind of thing. I'm a huge fan of of some Czech films and. You know, in my experience, especially in that sort of like Prague Spring era, it's like there are two kinds of Czech films, uh, Holocaust films and sort of Soviet bureaucracy films, you know? And I was like, well, I'm gonna, I'm leaning more toward the, the sort of bureaucracy style, <laughs> uh, a Kafka-esque style thing. And I've, I've, you know, I'm almost ashamed uh, at this point to bring us another art house labyrinth, but I've, <laughs> I've done it again, you know? If you <laughs> you put a notch on the old, you know, we all have our corners, right? Uh, we're here again. We Death certainly the are. Compass, Salto, you know, whatever. We've done it before. We're here again. We are in the art house labyrinth. We're lost in the in the bureaucracy and many other things. And so I just poked around to to find something that that f- sounded interesting to me, and I was certainly uh, taken with the title of the film I chose. Case for a Rookie Hangman uh, from 1970. And when I saw that title, I was like, what's this all about? And then it sounded even weirder than uh, when than I had imagined from that, from that title alone. And so uh, this film was written and directed by Pavel Juracek, who was a, primarily a screenwriter in the early 1960s before turning his hand to directing. And interesting connection between the two, uh, aside from his sort of early contributions to some of Chitilova's work, uh, Juracek, I think, maybe came up with the idea for Daisies or helped on an original draft and then asked for his name to be removed when it was all said and done. I don't know any more details than that, but he was a collaborator of Chitilova's and he also wrote a Carol Zeman film, The Jester's Tale from 1963, uh, which is a sort of 
Uh, it's about the Thirty Years' War, but the poster has a floating city on it, so you can already imagine uh, the ahistorical epic that they conjured up together. Um, and so, yes, this is the, the second film, I believe, that Juracek directed, and it is, like Andy's film, an adaptation of some classic literature. Uh, going even farther back than Jules Verne, this is a extremely loose adaptation of the third book of Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift with a little bit of Alice in Wonderland mixed in just for fun. But of course, this is all an excuse for Juracek and his collaborators to craft a labyrinthine nightmare uh, for a character to get lost in. And it reminded me, you know, of War of the Worlds Next Century, which I also brought, right? The Polish film, uh, where we talked about that film having sort of like multiple layers of meaning. And I think we're here again in a, a heavily censored regime with a highly allegorical film. And so we have the character Lemuel Gulliver uh, gets into a zany road. <laughs> Uh, a series of road gags and then a road accident uh, upon which he, yes, stumbles upon a, a hair, where, dead hair wearing clothes in the middle of the street. Yeah, a little suit. Uh, <laughs> a little suit and a little pocket watch. And that initiates us into the narrative and he's going to be brought through the tunnels into Balnabari, the kingdom uh, that is ruled over by Laputa, the flying city uh, up in the sky. And so he's playing with these elements from Gulliver's travels to craft, uh, again, an allegory uh, about Soviets about also go back, uh, go back in time. I mean, I guess, you know, brief history lesson, but uh, Czech, the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia, right? Uh, they had, you know, long been occupied by other people, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, for example. Uh, but then they had this republic in the interwar period, and then that was uh, snatched away from them, right, by the Nazis and then uh, later by the Soviets. And so, like what we talked about with Poland, where there's like a long history of occupation, yeah. so, so it goes here. And I think, to me, it makes it a very rich, uh, rich film exploring these ideas, especially of, yeah, the, the faraway rulers in the sky that we just dream of. What's going on up there? Um, but yeah, this is... Uh, yeah, to, you know, most people would say uh, it's it's Kafkaesque, uh, and it indeed is. But funny thing about that, speaking of like literature, uh, most people in Czech at the time were unfamiliar with Kafka until the early '60s when his shit was republished and there was like a conference, and so Kafka was like new to a whole generation of Czech filmmakers in the 60s, which I think also explains the oversized influence uh, of it. But I was also reading about the history of Jules Verne in uh, Czechoslovakia, which was like published widely and was like very widely read uh, from the 1880s onward. So I mean, it was really interesting to me like discovering that sort of 
the Czech author was sort of unknown, and Verne, of course, was known by all, you know. Anyway, I'm, I'm already losing my mind, but uh, <laughs> yeah, case, case of a Rookie Hangman, it's got it all. It's got the government functionaries uh, cracking nuts on their desk and letting them roll across the floor very awkwardly. Uh, it's got, uh, you know, traumatic dead women uh, in his past that he's imagining who are also look exactly like the the woman in the town who also looks exactly like all these other characters played by the same actress. And we're just, yeah, we're just taken into this crazy world and sort of spun around and spit out. And uh, we'll get into the details. That's a case for a rookie hangman. And I should add, the hangman himself does not disappoint. So I love a film that delivers on, on the title. And we'll get into... <laughs> the portly uh, hangman himself later. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you both. I, I didn't know that about the Kafka resurgence in the 60s. I know it's always been... because I, Within the last week th that we spoke, I've read the entire complete short stories of Kafka because I've never <laughs> actually read any of his stuff before, oh. just the metamorphosis. Wow. So I've been like inhaling him, um, but I know... And I got the trial on deck... After I, I'm, I'm on Milan Kundera again. I'm on another Kundera kick. I've always been like a Kundera freak. I almost bringed Phil, Philip Kauf, bringed. I almost brought. <laughs> I almost brought Philip Kaufman's film to just fucking troll you. <laughs> yeah, it's not very good. It's like okay. Uh, I would have probably enjoyed watching it again. It's just a Prague Spring refresher. It's got like good historical detail in it. But no, it's funny because. As I understand it, I mean, even the people in the Czech Republic have, like, a strange relationship to Kafka because he wrote in German, obviously. So it never always felt like, even though he lived in Prague his whole life, that they can't even read Kafka and it's in, in their native language, you know. Even though it is, I mean, the Czech Republic, it's so perplexing. There's so many languages. I mean, you know, you think of how many people even identify as being, like, from Moravia, you know, when you read about some of this stuff. But the Kafka thing is, I mean, yeah. That was quite obvious for Case of the Rookie Hangman. It was amusing even having just read the stories, how there's like a very literal in the penal colony reference with like the elaborate execution machine, because that was one of the stories that really, really stuck out to me and never having been familiar with it. It's just such such a perverse thing. But it's interesting, yeah, that then like I'm thinking about just the Czech New Wave in general and how one of my gateway drugs, I feel like, for European art house cinema, you know, in, like, early college. I mean, I was, you know, I was into, like, Bergman and stuff in high school, but I do feel like the Czech New Wave was the first big wave I got into, because um, a lot of that stuff was really accessible at the time, and I'm thinking, like, of the Criterion films that would sort of pop up in front of my face. That's, like, what I dived into, and they do have, like, that energy of always being allegorical, because it was a, a radical period when they were obsessed with the Soviets, of course, and with communism. And that was like a big like instructional period for me, too, because I'd watch these things and like not actually know what was going on because my gaps in history knowledge at the time were pretty significant as it related to Central Europe. So I've always had like a special place in my heart for the Czech New Wave because of that. And then it's funny with your film, Andy, like as I'm thinking, just these two films, I think, really capture what I love about Czech cinema and what I always go back to when I watch it is, of course, like the, the kind of radical allegories from a really fertile period in the 60s, um, but then also just the fantastical element of the cinema. Just the, the amount of animation that's come out of, of Czechoslovakia 
it just blows my mind. Like when I think of the coolest stop motion stuff there is, I usually think of, of that stuff. You know, it has like such a distinct quality to it, like a fairy tale, fantastical quality. And yeah, Invention for Destruction like melted my mind in my eyes, like just watching it. I can't believe it exists. It's just such a marvel. Yeah. I mean, I was doing a lot more research um, after watching the film on him. And, you know, I think only after seeing his his work do do you, are you really able to recognize like uh how how influential it has been to animators and filmmakers of of all kind of like shapes and sizes i mean i read that this is considered by many like czech film scholars to be like the most in quotation marks i think like uh successful uh international mm. like film like from from the Czech Republic like ever yeah and I think that they they probably don't even mean that necessarily like financially but more in its influence in the way it inspired filmmakers and you know you mentioned like Wes Anderson it's like Terry Gilliam of course obviously right I mean even even before he started directing films but just his style of animation with Monty Python it's it's rooted in again that like Victorian uh, style that that we see well on display here. And again, the sort of mixed media quality of it. So, yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's the kind of thing where you're just sort of like, I can't believe I haven't actually seen this stuff, but I've been feeding off of all of the knockoffs, all of the, yeah. the sort of like, I've been feeding off of the the, the network, the web of of filmmakers who've sort of, come from this this central filmmaker the central work so yeah it's it's incredible i just can't get over how successful it is in terms of like convincing you of its realism i mean like you can the, the copy we saw is in you know such crisp hd that you could see the handcrafted quality of all of it and how it all works and all those different pieces you were talking about but it's still convincing and i keep thinking about like watching this movie on vhs yeah, I feel like it would look too real. Like it, the effect would just be <laughs> unbelievable because it would just like blur all the edges and I would feel as though I was watching a Victorian drawing brought to life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's really like uh, the kind of thing where I think while you're while you're watching it, you know, I wasn't trying to I think be be belittle the 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 narrative aspect of it but it's like it's the kind of thing where just every single frame of this you, your eyes are just searching every corner mm -hmm. to to look for these little bits and to to figure out like how it was constructed how it was put together and there's i think so much reward in that you know that the magic of it is it's yes kind of like handmade quality but how seamless it all comes together. I mean, every single frame of this is a work of art, in my opinion. I mean, I think there's a reason that Millier's comes to mind for so many people when seeing these, as if, like, between Millier's and Zeman, there was no one. Right. And then yeah. Zeman was <laughs> yeah. like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, like, I'm gonna get back to that. And it, it honestly, that's what it feels like, that sort of, like, cinema of attractions, like, spectacle... It's a marvel, you know, every single frame of it is is just like mind blowing. And in, in so many ways, they are like triple and quadruple 
optical printing this thing with such precision, like you can't help but just uh yeah to, to have to have no words <laughs> yeah. i mean it really is i think you know one place we can maybe start is the obvious connection between the two that i saw with uh you know humans relationship to uh science and technology i think is a, a very big part of of both films of course Invention for Destruction, as Andy pointed out, is kind of like nuke jamming in this very, like, 1950s way. Um, and interesting, too, because it's a lot more skeptical, I think, towards technology than Vern uh, ever was, you know, who was very wide-eyed. And, and Zaman, yeah. I think there's there's a little, a lot, a lot of sort of tempering of that sort of attitude, which maybe we can talk about. And then in Case of a Rookie Hangman, in the kingdom that he wanders into, right, it is, like Swift, a, a satire of the then society. And so you have this sort of, like, blind faith in rationalism and in, in science uh, that has essentially led everyone astray, right? So it's, yes, a parody of, uh, in that sense, you know, the communist state, where it was like, machines are going to solve are going to solve all of our problems and of course what we see is that uh they seem to create more problems and new problems and different problems so uh just noting that in between them was fascinating and i think both they're i think they're both skeptical uh of that which is also yes a sort of dissenting kind of uh, view to have in this period mm -hmm. you know? and i think that's why for Zeman, he was so taken with the work of Jules Verne and using this as sort of the springboard to play with a lot of those ideas because there's a certain like quaint, naive kind of approach to technology in the work of Jules Verne. You know, his sort of imaginations of like how amazing the industrial age is, is going mm -hmm. to be. Um, that, that Zeman like leans into then the sort of like artificial look to it all, the, the obvious, like kind of artifice. And, and as a result, like all of this technology just ends up looking so ridiculous and it, it should be ridiculous. I mean, as much as it's like cool and yeah, like steampunk, like aesthetic is like, wow, that thing looks yeah, who awesome. Who doesn't love an airship? Yeah. Who doesn't love an airship or a dirigible or a, you know, yeah. Some big, huge steam powered fucking, I love the, the idea just in general of the coal burning submarine, you know, it's got a smokestack coming out of it. And I'm thinking, what the hell happens when, when you close the under, hatch yeah. and you go under, right? But I think, like, that's the point. You know, he's sort of, like, leaning into this, like, this idea of, like, man's folly through invention, right? And again, in the title, and there are multiple times where characters actually use the title line, invention for destruction, that these things, as much as they can bring us the hope of the modern age of progress, the, the double-edged sword is always that they can very quickly and very easily be turned into uh, weapons of, of war, weapons of empire, weapons of, of annihilation. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's like the, that, that's a really good connection to make between the two is this idea of, of sort of like progress that has lost uh, sight 
of what its its initial promise was, you know, between these these two two worlds. Right. And that's it's funny thinking about it that way because I was obviously thinking about in the penal colony with the execution machine, the like elaborate death machine that they're going to be using as a performance for like a crowd of onlookers in case of the rookie hangman, because the underlying sadness uh, for the one of the like commanders in that short story is that like their elaborate death machine that would carve the sentence on the back of people used to be a whole production. It used to be something that everyone came out to watch and everyone marveled at this machine, but now it's like falling out of favor and it's funny then because i was also thinking about it with invention for destruction the penal colony is like a funny core then of like weird czech imagination that links these two films where it is like that spectacle of the invention and even throughout invention for destruction you're marveling at these giant steampunk type machines that will eventually just turn into a nuke (laughs) you know but it is like that jules verne wonder like oh look at this elaborate thing but then like it all just comes down to this death and the and the spectacle starts to slowly like you know wither away yeah lose its luster yeah exactly yeah Yeah. and in hangman we have uh the hand operated machine that we're also introduced to uh which is uh, essentially uh I believe, a, like a manufacturing consent machine, as it's sort of explained. He says, the thinking machine, it's called. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he explains that the problem is... Jde o to, aby už nikdo nemusel zbytečně myslet, pane Gullivere. Považte, co zbytečného myšlení se všude děje. I děti musí myslet, i staří a nemocní, i lidé, kteří nemají na myšlení vůbec čas. I ti o nich si myslíme, že nemyslí. Blázni... Even the dumbest people in society think, uh, which poses a serious problem. And so they've invested all this time and energy and science and rationalism into a machine uh, that tells people what to think or how to think, right? So, Because what's the line they say? They say something like... The average person we've discovered has 10,000 thoughts a day, but we thought, what if we had some horsepower to this? And then then we're really going to propel some thinking. Yeah. Yeah, It's such Mm -hmm. a funny... Yeah, and just in general, I really liked Case of the Rookie Hangman. I mean, I loved both of these movies, but it's so funny because the stuff that's really vivid for Case of the Rookie Hangman for me is, is probably the first half. And I like, Marsh, how you called out that you're like, I've brought us another european art house labyrinth because that was like ultimately the effect of this movie is you do sort of get lost in the labyrinth uh and you feel like you're being churned like you are the thought machine and you're we're trying through to... the looking glass yeah totally and we're trying to like link up all these things and i i do feel like by the end there was this diffused quality of even when they were sitting down at dinner and trying to have conversations to like tie up this movie i was like you guys you guys have lost me <laughs> Like, I've just been on the trip with Gulliver, and that's why I love the effect, but yeah. Yeah. But again, I think that that goes back to what, you know, both of you were already getting at earlier. And again, it's it's also why I've always been drawn to so many films of the Czech New Wave, because, you know, they clearly understood that whatever, like, Soviet authorities were in charge of the film industry were just a bunch of fucking, like goons just a bunch of morons and it's like so many of the 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 films that i've really enjoyed that i've seen of the czech new wave it's like 
they they have to like lean into this idea of being like we need to make this shit uh, obtuse you know we need to make yeah. this stuff so that the censors are just gonna be like i don't know what these artists are doing here you know sure fine like yeah pass it it, it can be shown to people so i think that like that's 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 part of the quality that you will find. And again, something like daisies, right? It's like, what is daisies about? Well, it's about a lot, you know, it's about a lot. And it, it's also about like some very simple ideas that, that you can find yourself to. But as far as plot is concerned, as far as just uh, telling a simple story, it's like, well, you know, if someone can follow that thread too easily, one of these authority figures, like the potential for them to sit, sort of... They'll start thinking. Yeah, they'll start thinking, and right? that's the and last then, thing you uh, want. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I think that that's, that's definitely something that I really experienced in uh, Rookie... Uh, Cakes for Rookie Hangman as well. But, but I... Love was this kind of for film. all his efforts, you know. Right. I mean, Daisy's was ultimately banned <laughs> yeah. too, because again, I think that what would happen is these movies could get out, and then, and then people could start to sort of go, well, you know, this is really kind of like an insult to the regime or whatever, and they'd be like, what? We just thought it was these weirdo filmmakers goofing around. Well, apparently not. You know, wow, I just thought this was supposed to be some sort of adaptation of Gulliver's Travels. Everybody can agree on that book, you know. But it's like, <laughs> nah. And again, I, I also think that there's. There is a a political critique, which I think we've already somewhat introduced in uh, Zeman's work and certainly in Invention for Destruction. I mean, he is reading about some of his other films that I, I haven't seen. It's 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 very apparent that this dude was was on a big anti-war kick. I mean, a lot of his films seem to revolve around the idea of satirizing and critiquing war and conflict and empire now certainly this is is very pre you know Prague spring 68 but but i mean this is a critique of the 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 atomic project that was a huge mission within the Soviet Union and the United States you know so i think with with zeman it isn't necessarily like uh, I think totally directed at just the 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 Soviet bureaucracy. Oh, definitely not. Uh, it's yeah. it's a much more sort of like global critique of power that that you see in his work. But yeah, the closer you get to Prague '68, before and after, I think you really start to see uh, a much more, you know, much more anger and much more frustration and much more clear anti-authoritarianism in a lot of like Czech films, you know, a sat satires that are really just focused on uh, the, the Soviet bureaucracy, the Soviet authorities. Yeah. You know, Andy, I read that uh, Zeman also was smart because he declared his films for children. So they were just automatically under less ideological scrutiny, pressure yeah. and less scrutiny uh, using that defense. And again, yeah, I think it's instructive. Hangman is is so obtuse. Uh, and it's, yeah, a film after the Prague Spring, after the invasion. Uh, and Zeman's film, like, it has a plot. Now... It's funny, of course. Like, uh, I, d I don't want to say there's plot holes in Zeman's film, but like some of the some of the sort of like conception of how it all works is was cracking me up. Uh, like, just the lax security oh, in the yeah. bond layer is like one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Like, yeah, 
the world, like the whole world is at stake and they're just like letting Dude, Simon Hart run around. Well, cause he like can't get out of there. You need well, to be like airlifted yeah. out of that place. Yeah, but I know what Marsh is, I know what Marsh is talking about. Total bond layer though. Just want to like get the bond alert in there. Oh, Very true. 100%. But like, I, I totally know what Marsh is getting at here because it isn't just that like everyone is extremely chill and everyone is very chill throughout this movie. Um, but it's the fact that like they have Simon Hart, who is this 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 second only to the professor in like his genius for invention and chemistry and stuff like that. And it's like these motherfuckers like put him by himself, unsupervised, in a shack, and then also deliver him like an entire chemistry set. Like they hand fucking MacGyver <laughs> everything yeah. MacGyver needs. And then they're just kind of like, Hey, don't do anything. We Dude, wouldn't like you to do. Don't with this MacGyver. Stuff. Yeah. Don't MacGyver. <laughs> and then he immediately sets about MacGyvering to like create some balloon that can send a message right. to the, the, yeah. the Imperial powers of Europe, you know, like what do you think was going to happen? Sure. That I get what Marsh is saying, but even prior to that, like, Man, I just and again, I think it's what's like so fun about this movie. Like at the very the very beginning of the film when Professor Roche and Simon Hart are kidnapped by the pirates, it is the most graceful kidnapping yeah. you've ever seen. The most like lithe and and I mean light as a feather the way these guys are are absconded away by by the pirates. You know, like there's the one strong man cuz it doesn't even look like Simon's gagged or anything when they grab him and he just like doesn't scream. They just wrap no. him up in some rope and they cart him out of there. Yeah, the one pirate just kind of like effortlessly picks him up. Dude, you remember like the strong man? I just wrote like he must weigh like a hundred pounds. This little actor playing Simon Hart, the way he was picked up with yeah. such swiftness, like yeah. I couldn't believe it. I love it, but that's it. And it's so chill. Yeah, they're taken away. There's a little bit of a shootout, but like no one's breaking a sweat. You know, no one yeah. panics. The professor just kind of gets like a a blanket thrown over his head and just kind of then goes along. And then even when he's on the ship, he's just chilling on the ship. You know, he's not like trying to fight these guys. He just sort of goes along with it. Now, Simon does say that, you know, he critiques his boss a little bit. He says, you know, my boss is a little too trusting. That's kind of his thing, you know? The he's, world's most naive man. Yeah, yeah. So when he's offered light refreshment and then told to work on his antimatter for a bunch of pirates in their evil lair, he just doesn't resist at all. He just starts making everything that they want. Yeah. Nor does he once wonder what happened to his good friend and assistant, Simon Hart. Yeah. And then there's also like the the woman who they, they capture who just then kind of just sets about just doing domestic tasks throughout the rest of the movie. Do you notice that yeah. every scene she's either doing laundry or bringing sandwiches? Bring tea. Yeah, and bringing tea and she's never trying to fight or get out of it. I mean, yeah. So I hear what you're saying, Marsh, yeah. but I think it does tie but into yes, the... But yes, that's so beside the point. Yeah, the 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 light wonders quality of yeah. the whole thing. Well, I liked earlier, Andy, when you mentioned that, you know, I don't want to play the downplay the, like, story and the narrative quality of this, but it really is about marveling at every frame of this movie and the intricate care, because I think about halfway through I'm watching this thing, and I kind of say to Molly, like, hold on, wait, wait a minute. Like, remind me, are they are they being held hostage? And she's like, yeah, they got kidnapped <laughs> at the beginning. Like, and I'm like, yeah. oh yeah. And that's the thing you forget, you know, yeah, because everyone's kidnapping. <laughs> just moving around. I'm like, how are all these people related? And I like forgot that there was Artigas, you know, the like, the grand pirate about all of this and throughout I, it was so diffuse i never knew who like 
who really was like the villain, you know? It was more just like the overwhelming threat of eventually nuclear annihilation once antimatter was starting to be discussed. And I think that that again for Z-Man like ties into the source material and and the humor that he found in sort of that era uh, of of looking back on this kind of like Victorian futurism and and sci-fi and adventure is especially in the art the sort of like stoic quality of so much of that kind of like imperial Victorian shit you know mm-hmm. these heroes who never break a sweat when you look at the the drawings and when you look at the soldiers all lined up like everybody's just like the great stone face everyone looks like buster keaton you know they could be fighting a giant squid and it's just like a milk run to to the corner store for all these great you know pioneers and adventurers of this this new age i mean there's a hilarious moment early on. I was I, I I loved it where they're on this train. They're they're kind of like heading out somewhere on this train, and this is where we get a sort of like montage oh, of all the, the wonders montage. of the era. And there's just this kind of like like kind of like cowboy guy on the train, and and he decides to take a pot shot at like a seagull outside the window of the train, but his gun it's like jamming. It's not really working. And then suddenly it goes off when they don't expect it to, and there's just some guy on the train with a big newspaper open in front of it, and just blows a hole through the newspaper, and everyone is just like, holy shit, he just killed this guy, you know? And the guy drops the newspaper down, and his line is everyone's looking at him to be like, did he just get fucking shot by this guy? And and he just says, what a terrible loss of life. And I was thinking like... He's talking he's about referring, himself. Yeah. He's referring to himself. But he's talking about one of the news stories in the paper. And and again, I think that's like part of the playful humor with this whole era. You know, this this kind of ridiculous ramrod, you know, starched like collar uh, uh, Victorian kind of perfection that we see in, in all of those images. And he's referring to like uh, a submersible disaster or whatever. So there's also this element of like, yeah, in, in Zeman's world, like the dangers that yeah. are going on. And he's not phased by, yeah, the, the ale and quail club antics of the, <laughs> the shooter on the train. But I'm, yeah. I'm glad you brought up that this is part of a, a montage and this is part of, yes, like the the wonders of the age montage. But in general, throughout the film, you know, I was not expecting, you know, for something so designed and so intensive to have... Uh, such dynamic montage moments in the film. And I just want to highlight a couple, right? One is when they are attacking the merchant ship uh, and they, they get prepared and there's this amazing montage where all these like sea pirates are sharpening their swords and then it's like doing Eisenstein shit with like the pistons and like the inner like all the steampunk shit it's like oh yeah steampunk dialectics and these guys are sharpening <laughs> their swords like that shit's amazing and so's the way the film works in like I don't want to call it found footage but there's like documentary footage strewn throughout the movie especially when there's like you know the message goes out from Simon Hart and like the UN or whoever is coming to the rescue you know and there's these like fantastic montages of like 
Avengers Assemble, oh, you know? Yeah. And there's, like, troops on camels with, like, roller skates. Yeah. I don't even know what's yeah. going on with Dude, some I of that shit. That. Yeah. But, like, my mind was blown by, yeah, like, several montage moments in this movie. It's not just a composed Millier's thing. It's, it's so much more than that as well. Both movies have camels. Yeah. Did you they catch do. the... Yeah, Case for the Rookie Hangman has that lovely little baby camel at the circus. It's kind of nice. Yeah, they do. <clears throat> I was also marveling at how the governor's office in Hangman and the Count's office mm. in uh Could have been the same set. They're, they are the same goddamn thing. They have, like, the same exact map size and frame in the background. Like, yeah. These wow. checks love maps. Like, that's <laughs> what I'm seeing here. That's yeah. true. Yeah, without a doubt. But I got to say, yeah, that... You know, as amazing as like all the painted stuff and the and the way that the lines are are put onto like actual objects on the set, I couldn't get over how well it still worked with water. I thought that that was like an incredibly brave effort for a film that was like so designed on like the the way this animation gag works is if it's black and white and we have these like you know the black lines strewn across everything to like give it that sense of the printed page and yet he's like you know what i think this should all like take place (laughs) like primarily on boats uh by big bodies of water and for it to be under the sea and that effect is so cool i don't know andy if you know how exactly they did it but it seemed to be some form of projection but because those lines are still like wavy on the water when there are waves um and it's those shots where there's like layering of you know cut out paper figures and then also like stop motion claymation things and then the actual water and then again like mats things cut it's just unbelievable the amount of time it must have taken for those shots in particular blows my mind i mean if you're asking me if i know how they did it no (laughs) no fucking idea how they did it it's it's beyond me dude i mean this is again it's like I, I I think about today, like the CGI spectacles of like so much like sci-fi and it's just like, I yawn in so much of that crap because I'm just kind of like, all right, yeah, okay. Just after effects, you can do anything with a computer nowadays, you know? But like this makes me, like makes my brain hurt. Makes because me I'm, dizzy. I'm like, yeah. yeah. And it's, it, it, it makes me dream when I'm watching a movie of, of like, of the actual craft of filmmaking and and st- sit back and and really just get so excited again for the possibilities that that still exist that we've drifted so far from you know something like this shows so much more ingenuity invention care and just like effort than you'll see in in any 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 CGI spectacle today, I, yeah. I, I don't care. You know, there's also uh, there's also the like underwater cam aspect of this movie that I think is incredible. Like when we're underwater, and again, shout out to our the Abyss episode 107. We're back. Uh, I think this is like the second time we've been back in submersibles since that episode, by the way. <laughs> it's kind of one of our things now. But uh, yeah, there's a, there's a, again, I have no idea how they did it, but the, the dreamy, watery quality of the image in the underwater stuff was like almost psychedelic. I loved it. I loved how 
yeah, just like blurry and, and weird everything was under the sea. It was like perfect. It does make you feel like you're on drugs yes. in like a really good way. Yeah. It looked like the they had way. some sort of clear plastic or some it, it looked like they were stretching something over the lens to kind of give it that texture and that depth you know i saw that the carl's uh carl zeman museum in prague has the submersible i don't know if it's the literal one um but i did I, that's like the one glimpse i saw of the museum so i'll be sure to check it out and maybe they explain how all of this worked yeah, we're um, gonna we're gonna expect a follow up report when you get yeah. back from the Carol Zima Museum. Place help has, us, yeah, I bet it has help us understand this work. You know, <laughs> I do love yeah that all that stuff with the submersibles and like that underwater crew as it compares to both like the sponge divers and just the general Jacques Cousteau like gang of guys because we of course we all loved their big yellow scooter machines that they were swimming around in in uh the Jacques Cousteau film and here yeah what if they were bicycles <laughs> yeah yeah much cooler <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah dude everything like every fucking sequence I would just find myself going like <gasps> like oh like just it's a, it's a, another like amazing beautiful little like invention would pop out and I I just would wonder like why don't we have these Things, I know. You know. I think my f- absolute like favorite quality of invention for destruction, and I wish that every single movie was like this, is uh, when it would be you know a close up or a medium shot, and it's a real human being, and then once we entered into a wide shot, it was suddenly a stop motion figurine. That was the best. I loved whenever they did that. I wish like that's what the Mission Impossible movies were like, <laughs> that they were Dude, little claymation yeah. guys when we got to the wide shot. That's just like such a nice touch because then you go back and forth between it and it was like so convincing is lovely i think it's worth pointing out to something that i was reading a little bit about which was also you know the the absurd and surreal qualities of their film as much as they may be attributed to censorship it's also like just a much richer and longer tradition uh in czech art uh, especially going back to the interwar period and a period when Zeman himself was sort of coming up. I believe he served in the First World War, maybe, I think I might have read, or at least he was, like, around. I mean, he was around. He was born in 1910, though. <laughs> oh, okay, so. so he was a child. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, but I know that... He like, had formative experiences, I read during the like the nazi takeover yeah. where he tried to he tried to flee and then he was basically like locked down there yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. but he didn't serve in the army though so but i know that he was certainly influenced by like the 20 you know the 20s one you know the great experimental decades in all of art uh and then yes like the soviets were like you know banned modernism or whatever <laughs> but like yeah there's there is that rich tradition in in the absurd of the surreal uh and again even in the 60s as well it's also your guy andy beckett it's his time you know it's ionescu's time it's the theater of the absurd like that you know that was published in the early 60s so that's also just yeah everywhere yeah. it's in the air and a lot know? of that a lot of that work was sort of uh you know throwing back to like the silent era of cinema and the expressionist era and and stuff like that you know i mean so much of beckett's work is 
is is rooted in like the aesthetics of of like slapstick silent comedy or or even you know elements of like yeah german german expressionist i mean german expressionist art i mean like this is very clearly something that that was was yeah also uh influenced by things like dr caligari and faust and and those those sort of much more graphically expressionist works of that time period of a world that is uh twisted and 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 gnarled and very clearly artificial you know like highlighting that yeah because then for uh for hangman it's like it's like Dada. It's like it's all it's all about illogic. I mm-hmm. mean, they even talk about it in the film, like a dream where all logic goes up in flames. It's Alice in Wonderland. Literally nothing makes sense, you know? Yeah. It's 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 probably less expressionist and more surrealist in that sense, yeah. for sure. And and again, like that's that's one of the the best ways to critique a regime is to sort of like remove logic and 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 I think uh, sort of uh, clearly followed like causal linkages in your narrative. Like if you kind of break down those walls and those barriers then then you can always sort of like fall back on like nah it's not about that it's about a guy and a rabbit in a suit you know <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's it's about a car that just uh sort of ran away on its own and yeah. came to life it's about when you're at a cocktail party and you accidentally do the national dance wrong and then all of a sudden you're in trouble <laughs> yeah. oh man that yeah. was awesome we we watched this stop motion film called old czech legends that uh i can't say for any certainty but i think that like we get to see that very same dance there's like little stop motion guys doing that exact same thing that they're doing in case for the rookie hangman uh which is like it was kind of nice seeing like little toys uh that were supposed to be from like you know the year 800 doing that dance and then seeing this guy lost in this in this nightmare but i do love the of course the obtuse quality is really fun i like what you were saying andy about going after if you're gonna like really satirize bureaucracy sometimes it's like one of the most effective ways of doing it and i was thinking about then what the academy of inventors would have said if like professor roach was on trial in front of them because that's like a great scene of course like when our guy Gulliver is actually held to task amongst all these students, the the Academy of Inventors, like failing to live up to their youthful revolutionary, you know, ideals, perhaps. That mm-hmm. was like that was a nice scene. Yeah, I would love a college classroom where the student is allowed to get up and just slap uh, some guy, some, <laughs> some guy, you know, just like, yeah, I don't know if I would, I, I'd probably get slapped a lot. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. I take but, that back. By my students. <laughs> and I can't remember much if you already alluded to this, but like Juracek got like in trouble for this movie. He like didn't yeah, really get to make anything. He never, he got banned and he never worked again. And he defected to West Germany in the late seventies. And I didn't follow the thread that far. So mm. I don't, I don't know what he did after that. Sure. He could still be out there for all we know. <laughs> he could be. <laughs> Pavel, if you're listening, email us. I have some questions about all those great locations you found. Well, he shouldn't have made fun of Yuri Gagarin like that, you know? Yes, yes. Well, actually, that's, yeah. I want to talk about... The... Actually, maybe he's, actually, maybe he's not making fun of Yuri Gagarin, right? That kind of goes back to... Honestly, it's like a connecting idea. A lot of like the, the, the societal critique of 
you know, the, the, the Czechoslovakia that, that, uh, we see in a case for rookie hangman, like I was connecting many of those points to, to things that Zeman was putting forward. And again, this idea of progress, technological progress, societal progress, like having all of this promise and then those promises being betrayed by bad agents, bad actors, bad people yeah. in positions of power. Because there's a lot of moments in a case for Rookie Hangman where they're talking about the past and they're, you know, so much of it is also about memory as you've already kind of alluded to. But but I, I kind of feel now that I'm thinking about it, like the moment with Yuri Gagarin, they, they, they kind of go to this this newsreel, right? They're in like a theater and they're watching newsreel. Another connection yes, because we'll, we'll, after this, we'll talk about the newsreel, which is yeah. one of my favorite moments in Invention for Destruction. Uh, yes. But, but the newsreel in A Case for Rookie Hangman, we then get this footage of Yuri Gagarin and and one of the people in the in the audience like turns and says to Lemuel, like, remember him? Remember how great this was? Like essentially, like, remember the the hope of this moment, this idea of conquering space through, you know, socialist solidarity and power. And again, like logic, reason, rationality, science and technology, we were going to bring equality, not just to Europe or, or the greater Soviet Union or or Earth, but to the very stars themselves. We were going to spread, you know, Marxist-Leninism across the galaxies. And where are we now? Now it's a guy, like, walking you around town and pointing to, like, you know, all these, like, advertisements on the walls. Like, look at this. We're we're doing pretty good. You see this? Kodak. Fiat. Cinzano. Yep. You know? And it's like, where are we now? You know? Like like you said, this whole idea of a, of a magic society over our heads you know but but no one's even been there no one even knows what the hell's going on there everyone has lost the script completely and why this is then yeah a post-prague reflection of of hope of revolution and revolution that ultimately like failed and not just the revolution of 68 but the communist revolution of 1917 that we are now dealing with. I, I did want to then lean in, though, what you were mentioning, Marsh, like the locations in Rookie Hangman. It is it is like a stunning looking movie. And I will say it, it was nice. I'm pretty sure that was Prague. They shoot yeah, the oh, shit out of Prague. For sure, Prague. You see <laughs> yeah. St. Vitus, which I've been to. Oh, there you go. Okay, the perfect. So like in the big castle. Like yeah. You can't, you can't miss it. It's right. at the top of the hill. It's the big castle. <laughs> the big castle. But I did love how they, as like a city symphony in this labyrinth, like the way they kind of deterritorialized the, the space of Prague. I thought it was pretty neat. I, I thought it was like a great showcase of using like some rather unique architecture to have people find themselves in these rabbit holes i mean even really early on when he just like climbs this might even be a country home but i think about him like walking on the floorboards of that <laughs> that the upper floor and they all just start like bouncing like crazy and then he, you, you'll see this guy like jumping out of windows running around town alleys lead to really strange locations falling through doors 
Um, I thought that was like a very clever use of the space because so much of it's in the countryside, but they use the city in a way that made it feel like a labyrinth as opposed to just like a normal European city. Yeah, there's also like symbolic meaning too because one of the locations is like an empty factory that's now basically being used by like the police state or whatever. So again, another symbolic gesture of yeah we used to make shit in this building and now we're just like filing away everybody's names yeah like that sort of stuff now everybody's just a protector of the wells out in the woods yeah oh wow whatever that was yeah whatever (laughs) that was wow the partisans in the woods not sure uh Again, you know, it's like you, you, you have to look at so many of the moments of this film and, and I think on a certain level, like try to put yourself in the mindset of, you know, the, the, the Czech people who would be seeing this in, you know, 1970, this movie came out, right? And, and what they'd make of it, but, but it's also like what you want to make of it. And again, I, I, I also looked at that as this sort of like, again, another like critique of these sort of like lies that. Uh, a lot of the people, I think, who who pushed for that uprising in 68, you know, of like, hey, what happened to all this socialist promise, you know? Like, what do we see here? We see a well that everybody's supposed to share, and then there's a fucking, like... Yeah, some guy just shoots someone. Yeah, and 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 there's a mob, and and what happens? You know, like people rush the well, are stampeding over one another to get their share of the water, and ultimately they drink the damn thing dry. You know, like there is no more uh, sense of of abundance here, of 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 some sort of like egalitarian society in which we are all Mm -hmm. going to be well hydrated. Like, nah, there's just a mad dash of, of, of again, an idea from, from invention for destruction might makes right that, that we constantly see this sort of like society in which it's like, it's power, it's violence, it's the ability to subjugate that, uh, is what really rules everyone, not the the goodness of their their heart or their 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 soul. And it brings us back to Rome, Andy, because it, there there is that element too of like the circus, right? And there there is a defunct circus in the film, but there's also this you know the the real circus has been displaced by the state circus, the ceremonial execution. Yeah, and yeah. there's a, a fantastic scene where. You know, our guy Gulliver is like now on a bus full of people who are about to be executed. And it's like, how did he end up here? Uh, we're not sure. But they they bring this man on who we met at the beginning of the film, this poet who had nothing to say because he just sat around a train station all day and nothing happened. So he had nothing <laughs> to write about. And it turns out he's he's basically written a poem that's like the movie that we're watching. And... They bring him on the bus, and they're like, oh, man, what'd they get you for? And he says, like, well, my poem's not true to the spirit of the country. And then there's like a literary critic or someone on the bus who says, uh, it's, a, it's about a hair that wore clothes. What's anti-state about that? 
And then and then someone cracks. You ever see a hair dressed up in this country? <laughs> and like that to me again is is yeah the the meta commentary and something explicit like that. Of course, yeah, no shit. This film was banned, right? Yeah. It's you're not asking for it, right? Yeah, there, you're you know? announcing that it is not true to the spirit of the country as defined by the state, right? You know, we are we may have different ideas uh, of what the country means. You know, I love when that poet is about to be executed and he's asked to provide some final remarks for the audience and he utters like a bunch of unfinished proclamations he'll like start something and it trails off and he loses the thread and then he decides to just cap it off (laughs) yeah it's got nothing to say but then he does cap it off with like you know some real hard-hitting give my sausage to the orphans and my beer to the widows (laughs) like (laughs) dude I laughed out loud when he's approached in the line and he's like, uh, I'll, I'll go first. And he's holding a cat and the executioner's like, for God's sake, get rid of the cat, man. Yeah. <laughs> he's about to be executed in this giant machine, you know? I love that executioner, though, because he was kind of like working his way through the line to try to figure out the order. And of course, like... Sweating, dude. Yeah. The, the, the pretty babe, he's like, don't worry, I'm going to do you last so I can kind of work out the kinks on the first couple, you know? <laughs> like, that's his act of chivalry is like, I'm going to make sure this thing, this thing has been a little wonky, too, you know? And yeah, it's so funny that that's the film's title as he's just this like incidental character Character, right just this large man who's sweating and is really nervous i was trying to figure out maybe what the implication about yeah. like why is he the rookie hang like what happened to the last hangman did he you know did he get fed up because he was doing too many you know i don't know did he get executed himself i have so many questions well again i think it ties to the 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 sort of like the, the, the Kafka-esque element of the whole thing, you know, which, you know, so much of what I've always loved about Kafka is, you know, Kafka taught me probably even more so than than like Baudrillard about the, the banality of evil, the banality of these sort of like authoritarian states that that so many people find themselves in of, of really only almost any state, really, you know, any organized state. It's that, you know, like, who is your executioner? It's just... Like a guy is like, sorry, it's my first day. You know, it's not it's not some guy that takes it personal. It's it's the exact opposite. It's totally impersonal. And if anything, like he's trying to he's trying to be nice to you before the state cuts your head off for yeah, you know, like a bad poem or something like that. And they bring in the condemned uh, with a little pizzazz, as they say, uh, our brothers will show us some exercises. And they start tumbling, and I couldn't help but think about long-serving Illinois Secretary of State Jesse White <laughs> and his tumblers. I mean, this man was elected for like 40 straight years, and he, like the state in this film, had a tumbling squad. So, <laughs> oh yeah, uh, I, wow. I have been victim to being dazzled by the tumblers. You know, I punched Jesse White more than a few times in my life. You oh, know? yeah. You and, know what, though? Uh, they, 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 they should have always... They should have, like, while you're waiting for, like, an hour and 45 minutes at the Illinois DMV to get your license renewed, they should have just always had the TVs just constantly running, like, footage yeah, of, like, greatest the, hits, the Tumblr's dude. greatest yeah. hits, dude. Like, how much better would that experience have been? Oh, man. 
a, a real missed opportunity there. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It, wow. it did, though, again, another like kind of connection, which I, I mentioned earlier and I did want to go back to, was was the newsreel footage yes. in uh, Invention for Destruction. You Greatest, know, at a, dude. At a certain point when, you know, word has been... You know, when MacGyver got, you know, his 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 secret balloon out and spread the word to the Imperial powers, uh, they they bring news back of the, the sort of like armada that's heading via these big like like it's like a big sort of like almost like a zoetrope machine. Again, a sort of like hand cranked film projector. And yeah, magic lantern type thing, and then the, the count and the pirate captain, everyone sits down to get the news from abroad, and they get word, and they get this this great, you know, montage of, of all these armies assembling, which is, of course, very bad news for Count Artigas and everyone on back cup. And then suddenly it just cuts to like a new section sport, right? Yeah, sport. And it's like, and now from the world of sports, and then we just get basically Victorian line gravings of the very same tumblers we're seeing in in uh, in Case for Rookie Hangman. That's know? true. God, yeah, what a cool machine. The whole, that whole movie might as well have been projected from that machine. That's how I felt looking at this film. And that it was that scene I thought of Marsh when you when you mentioned that uh, this film feels as though like there was no one in between Melies and yeah. and Zimon because like that. I feel like that unlocked the movie for me a bit more because it really does feel that like that as if it's totally foregoing any other influence of the intervening gears <laughs> and just making something that feels like the natural next step if that was actually the path for cinema. Like this thing still captures that magic lantern wonder and is so out of this world that if you were projecting it on like a magic lantern as we see in this film the thing probably would just like start up in flames yeah. <laughs> because yeah. the, the wonder is so overwhelming. fire yeah it yeah. was so fucking fire because we got a sport newsreel in the middle of this film where guys are weightlifting uh playing piano uh with like beer a huge beer mug like bouncing up and down <laughs> on the piano uh dudes paddle boarding with wind propellers like they got they're on some next level shit i love it dude i love it yeah the, the highlight reel was too hot it set the projector ablaze. Yeah. yeah. I mean. Just like dumping buckets of water on them. Like, that can't be good for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think the thing's cooked after that. Yeah. You know? Something else that I was thinking about, too, is basically how Invention for Destruction uh, is is basically Zeman's uh, uh, big sort of like, you know, he's, he's, he's whistleblowing. He's blowing the lid off of Operation Paperclip, if you think about it, you know? All the... Uh, the, the the Nazi scientists who were being, uh, you know, uh, spirited away by the Americans and the Soviets to develop their nuclear programs. I'm thinking, Zeman, you know, he got it. He understood what the hell was going on. He tried to warn the world, dude, you know? That's true. You know, one of the only uh, contributing Czech scientists to the uh, Manhattan Project was, was a woman who's in... Uh, there's, I can't remember the actress, but someone plays her in Oppenheimer. She's got like a couple lines wow. as the, the, the Czech representative. So it was the Czech's fault too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Czech's culpable. 
so we should talk about when uh, finally, you know, uh, our guy Gulliver he gets a he gets an invitation to go upstairs to the flying city Laputa, and uh, no one's been up there in a long time. Uh, and I like the dispute that two of the townspeople have, where a guy's like, "My brother was the last one to go up there," and they were like, "No, it was some whore or whatever." <laughs> you know? uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, insane. But yeah, no uh, one's been up there, but but everyone is constantly sort of like filing into some central area of the town and just like putting things on some rope that's getting lifted up right. into the sky. You know, goats and baskets of bread and things like that. Everyone paying tribute, but nobody, as you mentioned before, has any idea who's even up there to collect this stuff. Yes. And so finally, yes, we get a peek behind the curtain. And who's driving the island? No one. And that's one of the, of course, great like satirical jokes of the film is the king of Laputa uh, left 10 years ago, and he's now a, a hotel porter in Monaco. And all that's left are the servants uh, and Prince Minudi or Minodi or whatever, who uh, is the scion of a, a rubber company or something that is now a circus. I don't know. Again, what, what's going on? Uh, but he's just like, he's drinking all of the government's liquor. Yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is awesome. And he's un- unapologetic about that. And so, yeah, the king nowhere to be seen it's just all the the maids and servants and they just like uh, live a quiet life up there and they have nothing to do with what's going on downstairs uh and i guess that is what gets uh gulliver in trouble when he goes back down and he starts blowing the whistle and the government the governor is uh not about that well no one's happy about it i mean that's right and again this is the the the, the real bitterness of the film's sort of like view of, of the world and of people. Because once he does go and more or less say like, hey, you know. It's all bullshit. Yeah. There, there is no Wizard of Oz, you know. It's just yep. a guy behind a curtain or whatever. And they, and they don't even know what the There's hell they're doing. There's not even a guy there anymore. Right. There's not even a guy there anymore. He's a fucking <laughs> bellhop in Monte Carlo. You know, I, saw, I, I met him once, you know. I tipped him a, a couple francs or something. But, like, when he tells everybody, he's like, they can't handle that illusion being broken because it means that all of their like suffering underneath this, this, this powerful regime, it's, it's utterly meaningless. So everyone turns on him. I mean, certainly the governor turns on him because like he brings back the photo of the governor's family. You know, the governor was like, please, it's a very important message to want you to bring the King. And it's just like a Christmas card or whatever. And he brings it back and he's like, yeah, he wasn't even there. Like he, he, he rejected your letter essentially. And the governor's pissed because the Christmas card, you know, was, was unreceived, but but everybody, even the young people, you know, seemingly the young radicals of the town, you know, the 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 the, the boys of Prague '68, they start beating the shit out of him too. Everyone's yeah. like, you you, because what are we supposed to do if there's nobody up there? Like you, you're you're fucking, you're a liar. You're an asshole. It can't be this. This cannot be the answer. That there's. There's no one behind the wheel like that. No one has a solution for it. So it drives everyone mad, basically, once he gets back there. Yep. And uh, 
you know, I was worried in Invention for Destruction about old Professor Roche, you know, the world's most naive man. He he reminded me, of course, of like tech bros today. You know, what could I'm going to create this thing? What could go wrong? You know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and this this guy is on a trip the whole time, just like obsessing over his experiment. Uh, but finally, in the last two minutes of the film, <laughs> in the last two minutes of the film, he comes to his senses and uh, detonates a shell of the super gun into a uh, spectacular animated explosion uh, that that I was like took my breath away how crazy it was you know yeah i didn't expect the explosion to look like that but of course it did and uh he redeemed himself for all his all his bullshit earlier yeah and uh the the imperial powers once again stand victorious and unopposed ah shit (laughs) i was almost waiting for an explosion of that proportion when the woman is like ironing her clothes on that cannon and has like a bunch of like little bonfires surrounding that cannon like she was using the what do you call those things that like the giant stick that well, it's like no, a ramrod, like, you know. Yeah, what oh, you used to yeah. like kind of mm-hmm. like you stick inside of the cannon uh to yeah. like clear it out after firing a shell. Like she was using that like a hot one to <laughs> to iron her clothes. I was expecting like a, that to end in a catastrophe, but it doesn't. But it's a clever way of ironing ironing your stuff. It's being resourceful with what the the world presents for you. Yeah, lots of ingenuity and invention amongst the people of Zeman's film. I mean, both of these movies are hard movies on a certain level to talk about. Not trying to, like, you know, uh, make a cop out here, but it's like, you know, Zeman's film is, it's it's like, it, it almost feels profane trying to put into words the the visual splendor and, yeah. and originality and creativity of, of this. I mean, it is like uh, the, the best... The be- it represents the best parts of what like motion pictures of 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 audiovisual media are capable of, and so when you try to describe it, it's like just it's like trying to describe a cartoon strip to somebody, a comic strip to somebody. It's like nah, just go read it for yourself. You know, it's 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 really uh, 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 well, dude. Interesting that you say that because not only is it true, but that's how Zeman felt about the original illustrations that were in the Verne like books in uh, when he was growing up. They had these magnificent illustrations, and for some of the movie, he took just like literally storyboarded the the etchings from the book to his storyboards to the screen, and it was that thing too that like. The Verne books were partially very popular because they had fucking pictures. Yeah. And they were things that, like, the, you know, or what the airship had 17 propellers is one thing, but then to see an airship is a different thing altogether. And to see it move is an e- another level, you know? So I think it's fitting. Something you can't translate into words and that's i think how zeman felt about Vern. yeah this is the perfect example of show don't tell i mean <laughs> you gotta see it folks like i can't tell you about it you have to see it for yeah. yourself 
recon underwater recon ninjas i wrote in my notes Ooh, that's good <laughs> can i can i describe that for you when those guys show up towards the end and they're like all black like yeah i liked the one guy too that just like a, a shark was kind of going by and then he just decided like i'm gonna fight that shark you know yeah. he just took on a shark by himself dude the axe wielding against the octopus i mean yeah you gotta see it to believe it folks you really do even with case for the rookie hangman i i think that uh it would make the very funny double feature with Salto and then like <laughs> charge someone like a year from that date to be like, describe that night. Like, tell me about both of those films with like any distinctions. <laughs> and because they would all just, it would, they're labyrinths. They would all just blur together. Um, but the images remain, you know, but it is something to kind of just experience, I think. I, I yeah, because there's almost something about like those kind of art house European labyrinths that like lull me into a sense of peace. I was a little nervous at the top of the film when there was all that wall to wall narration where he's describing everything that's happening. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, Both this... films have a lot of voiceover. Yeah, but I was like, is this a whole movie going to be like this? Because I had just watched the Alice in Wonderland film where she describes everything that happens. And then like whenever someone speaks, she'll say the rabbit said, you know, it's the close-up of her mouth. And I was like, oh man, is Gulliver going to narrate every step of this journey? And he doesn't. And he doesn't. Um, but like, yeah, from that point on, I, it's almost as if I'm floating down that labyrinthian river, you know? I let these images pass by. I always know we're like, we're going to head into a new chapter. We're going to get some new marvels. We're going to see some people drinking big buckets of water from these wells that they're protecting in the woods and then we're going to move on from that we don't need to linger on it too long we're going to see what comes next yeah, it's a nice feeling by a guy in a pork pie hat yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah both of these films those do such a good job at at making all human beings uh look absolutely foolish in in all of our endeavors they really do you know and i think that's like such for me like a perfect way to kind of like link the the overall experience of watching both these films you know it's just that uh, that i i find i i i walk away from both of them and just go like man we really it really is a miracle that we have all made it as far as we have in this world you know i i remember once hearing something about kafka because I'm a big fan of Kafka, and I know, Marsh, you're a big fan of Kafka, and Ryan, you're just surprisingly getting into Kafka, you know, <laughs> which kind of blows my mind, you know? But, um, you know, Kafka is often, I think, really, you know, when, when people describe things as Kafka-esque, they're, they're often, you know, these, these kind of, yes, like existentialist kind of nightmare uh, stories or films or experiences, you know, when something is in the, the spirit of Kafka, and I think it can lead to in in like bad cases, these like just kind of like ultra serious kind of like dour and yes, like um, very like kind of dense um, wandering kind of narratives. But I think something that people lose sight of is is that that Kafka, um, while writing his his stuff, like, saw in them like tremendous comedy mm -hmm. that that in his mind he was like i'm i'm writing funny books <laughs> that i'm writing funny books and i'd heard that apparently uh i guess when you know he was writing some of his stuff uh his landlady or somebody said that you know while he would be writing uh they would just hear him like 
cackling in his room <laughs> while he was writing That's things nice. like the metamorphosis, you know, which is seen by so many people to be this kind of like nightmarish tale. But the, while he was writing it, he was just cracking up. He was laughing his ass off at these, these visions that he was crafting and creating. Yeah, that's why I thought Case for a Rookie Hangman really captured that Kafkaesque quality in its like purest form. Because this movie is like very funny, and it's yeah, funny man. throughout. And even when you're like trapped in that nightmarish maze, and you feel as though there's these systems you don't understand that are trying to crush you like a bug, it is still very funny through throughout each of these sequences. Like you're never actually scared while watching Case for the Rookie Hangman. And that was my experience going through the complete short stories of Kafka. Yes, when his father is throwing uh, apples at Gregor the bug and the the apples get like stuck in his soft uh, bug back. Like that's nothing but funny. I can hear Kafka sitting there giggling <laughs> to himself while he writes that. Absolutely. Well, Ryan, these were our uh, you know, our 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 check stunners, yeah. our check hits for check you. Checkmate. Checkmate. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we checked ourselves. When you check yourself, what uh, what comes to mind? Well, as I said, you know, when I was... One of the first big new waves I got into was the Czech new wave. And I feel like the real gateway drug was Franisek Vlachel. And I believe I've actually already... I think I said Marketa Lazarova for my throwback for the medieval episode through I like inhaled his filmography. I barely remember any of the films, but it's funny. I look at my letterbox and see I gave him all like four and a half, five stars. Like I was obsessed with that guy, but he really is like amazing. I've seen Marquetta like a bunch of times, but all his other movies I think are, are great. But to do the classic gauntlet, we... We zig when others zag. The the film I have to recommend, I watched this week, and uh, it's actually a Slovakian film. <laughs> to to think about it, if you know, this was before the split, so it really it fits in, but it is like deeply, you know, about a Slovakian town and old Slovakian culture, and that was Pictures of the Old World from 1972, which is just this documentary about old people, it, like in in the mountainous regions of Slovakia and just like how they're getting on and it, it words fail me when I think about how to describe it but it is just it's so funny it's so beautiful it's so moving it's just these portraits of people and it, it, there was also a photographer who like captured all these photos so it's like partially inspired by those photographs but you spend time with these characters like you've got this guy one of the first things he said he's like yeah i mean you know i'm probably gonna die this year like i think and he just like spends his time selling eggs in town and he falls and they crack and then no one wants to buy him but he's still trying to sell them to him like it sounds very sad when i say that but the whole film is like very funny it's very lively it's just going up to like these people who were just like <laughs> withering away destroyed by communism being like what's the most important thing in life and they're like oh i don't know i just spend all my time walking around crying <laughs> and they laugh and they have no teeth you know it's just it's it's incredible it's so good but they also say beautiful and funny things it's very pleasant they really all value rest you know good health and rest that's what most of them value but it's a spectacular film and it's like 64 minutes long it's just like eat it up check it out uh, whenever you check it out <laughs> check it out whenever you can uh it's amazing but yes that, that that's what i would recommend uh the the works of frontisic vlachel and then spend some time in the slovakian mountains with pictures of the old world uh, but yeah yeah well thank you thank you both um we certainly checked it out 
I'm going to keep up my marathon uh, as well from this point on. But you, it was a, it was a great way to sort of kick it off and get it going. Uh, but Marsh, your topic is next week, and I'll try not to pick a Czech film. What is the what is the topic? Well, man, uh, you know, lately, I hate to say it, but uh, speaking of the old world, you know, I watched uh, Anthony Mann's. <laughs> Fall of the Roman Empire, uh, and I enjoyed that a lot. And then I watched Edgar G. Ulmer's Hannibal, and I didn't enjoy that very much at all. And I've got the taste, you know, and we're also coming into Christmas break. So I want us to take a trip back to Rome, to ancient Rome, the Empire, the Republic. Take your pick. I want to see... Probably togas and, and speeches and swords and uh, who knows, you know, come up with uh, whatever you want. You know, maybe there are some some radical approaches to Rome that Ryan can dig up. We'll find <laughs> we'll find out. But, uh, you know, uh, Kyle's a big fan of, of Roman history uh, as well. So, you know, you can also take that into consideration if you'd like you know. the rise and fall. Excellent. That's right. As always, you can follow us online on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and you can send us emails to gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Dovolte, abych vás přivítal. Jak se vám líbí na nejmodernější rodi světa, profesore? Je mi líto, že moji lidé museli použít násilí, ale jen tak se mi podařilo zachránit váš vynález před zneužitím. Kde je můj asistent? To bohužel nevím. Mé pozvání platilo pouze vám, profesore. Jste mým hostem. Provedu vás svým královstvím. Jsem pánem největší říše světa. Vynálezem podmořské lodi zmocnil jsem se oceánu, profesore. Jeho bohatství je větší než bohatství všech pevnin dohromady. Jeho dno ukrývá vzácné poklady přírody, zlatový šperky ve starých trulicích, které si kdysi moře vzalo a po nich je teď třeba jen vstáhnout roku. A to vše dávám do služeb vědy. Věřím vašemu vynálezu, vaší velké myšlence. A já učiním vše, abyste svou práci dokončil. Z pokladů oceánu jsem vybudoval podmorské město. A ne továrny a laboratoře čekají jen na vás, profesore. Váš genius a mé prostředky vytvoří dohromady velké dílo. Pohromíme celý svět.